I have always known that insurance can support society and be an avenue of good. Today, I also feel that insurance is one of the more exciting areas because of these innovations that are coming forward. So the startups are a part of that, whether they are independent or they are part of the large organizations. And I think it's critical to the success of the risk management community. You are listening to The Sure Shot Entrepreneur. a podcast for founders with ambitious ideas. Venture capital investors and other early believers tell you relatable, insightful, and authentic stories to help you realize your vision. Welcome to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur. I'm your host, Gopi Rangan. I'm here with Professor Joan Schmidt. She's the American Family Insurance Distinguished Chair in Risk Management and Insurance. She's the department chair for risk and insurance at the University of Wisconsin. She is also the program lead for the risk stream at Creative Destruction Lab, which is how I met her. She recruited me as one of the first mentors at the program. Risk is an important topic for me and for a lot of us. We're going to talk about what that means from an academic's perspective. We're also going to talk about how she views entrepreneurship as a career path for students and others, what can we do to make it easier for founders and entrepreneurs to build businesses? How does CDL's Accelerator program support startups? Let's first start with getting to know Professor Joan Schmidt. Where are you from and how did your early life shape your outlook? I have grown up in Wisconsin. My parents both grew up in Wisconsin as well. I'm the fifth child of five. And my parents were a little bit older when I was born, when all of us were born, actually, in part because they met just before my father went off to war in World War II. And not knowing that it would take four years for him to return, they decided to wait to get married. So my dad was 35 and my mom was 26 when they were married. And that's a little bit older than most people at that time. They were both fortunate in that they were able to attend and graduate from universities. My mom, especially, it was surprising that she was able to do that. Neither one of my parents came from any kind of money, but she received a scholarship and was able to go to the Milwaukee Area Teachers College, which is now UW-Milwaukee. My father received a scholarship as a runner, and he went to Marquette. So I have this Wisconsin connection through and through. And then there is also an innovation and a love of learning that they both brought with them. They both clearly made sacrifices to go to school, and they instilled that in all of their children. So the joy of learning is something that I got from my parents. In addition, I would say that they are innovators my father's father was one of the first automobile dealers in the state. The dealership started in 1910. You can imagine what they went through to make the company be successful. He started with his brother, and then they ended up having two dealerships, and each brother took one. 
when the Great Depression occurred, my father went to help his father. And with his brother, they took over and made it successful. Then when he returned from the war, he was able to start yet another dealership. So the Schmidt name is well known in Wisconsin for the innovation of beginning a new business. In 1910, there were many people still riding horses. My dad would tell the story of going out and teaching people to drive by taking the new car out to the farm, having the farmer drive him back to town, and then the driver had to get himself home. So that's how people learned to drive, yet they were able to be successful and generate this new life. My mother, while she was waiting for my dad to return from the war, she had many different jobs. She helped the officers learn Morse code and mathematics and history. She also worked in a bakery for a while, and before my dad returned, she taught third grade. She became a housewife in part because she was forced to stop working. Once a woman was married, she lost her job. But she always remained active, engaged in doing work for the community, in writing letters to the editor, always being active. So that's what I came to as a child. Now, as the fifth child, anyone who has multiple children knows that the parenting becomes less strict as there are more children. So I got the easy. That is true. <laughs> yeah, I got the easy route and I was allowed to do activities that my sisters and brother were not able to undertake. I went to the University of Wisconsin, got an undergraduate and master's, then worked for a Fortune 30 company, and it ended up being the company that was the prime contractor for the space shuttle when the space shuttle first took off. I was able to see innovation there as well. We did not know if the space shuttle would return to Earth. It did, luckily, and everyone in the building was jumping for joy when it returned safely. I learned quickly that I wasn't meant for the corporate world and returned to the academic world, went to Indiana University, got a PhD there, and then started teaching at the University of South Carolina and ultimately returned to Wisconsin, where I've been on the faculties for more than 30 years. So that's my background. Wow, what an amazing story, beginning from how your parents met and I can see your dedication and your inspiration. Everything comes from that family upbringing. You have been a professor for almost four decades now. You've been teaching risk specifically, the topic that is on the mind of pretty much everybody. What does risk mean to you? How do you define risk? Yes, we define risk as variability. And then I add that it's variability in future outcomes over a specified time period so that we can measure it. That variability can lend itself to positive outcomes. Without risk, there's no return. What we tend to be concerned about most in my discipline, however, is the negative outcomes, trying to predict so that there's less variability and even when we can predict, trying to prepare for the negative outcomes. That includes trying to prevent the negative outcomes or when they do occur, making them smaller in size and ultimately paying for the outcomes that do occur. That might be insurance, but insurance is just one method of managing risk. There is a variety of different ways to 
pay for risk and to manage it. Why is it important for us to understand risk and manage it for ourselves, both in personal lives and also in business? What I try to talk about with students is that when we don't know what's going to happen, we have difficulty in planning. We waste resources in planning for what might occur. And those lost resources mean that we cannot do as much with the resources we have. So the better we're able to predict what's going to happen, the better we're able to use our resources effectively. Now, many people focus on the negative outcome and that that is the risk. That's not how I think about it. We always want to have less resource go to losses. So we want smaller losses because that's an expense and everyone wants to have lower expenses. But the real risk management is in trying to deal with the uncertainty of what's going to happen and to use our resources most effectively. We can see that today in so many different places with cybersecurity, the amount of resources that we use to try to prepare for a cyber attack, for example. If we knew that there was not going to be attack, we could use those resources more effectively elsewhere and use them for cyber-related items more directly, the better we can predict. So that's really why risk management is so critical to successful business to make excellent decisions based on the information that we have. Risk is not always bad. If we learn how to manage resources and predict outcomes, then it becomes easier for us to make good decisions. That's such a broad topic and such an important topic. We deal with it on a daily basis and also at a macro level on how we shape our communities. Is there any specific area of risk that you specialize in? What is your area of research? I tend to focus on the property and liability area. I've been fascinated by legal issues, so that's where most of my research has focused. I've also done work on regulation that's related to legal issues to try to identify when regulation is helpful to society and when it might not be so helpful. Most recently, I've been working on areas of microinsurance, which are small valued policies that typically are not very desirable for insurers to offer because they are fixed costs. And when the small premiums are paid and you have fixed costs, then there's very little of the premium that goes to pay for losses. That's not desirable for people to purchase those policies. So I've been trying to identify ways to make microinsurance more available because the people who need those small valued policies typically are in low income. The more people who can standardize what's going to happen to them, insurance is one of the main ways, the easier it is to get people out of poverty. Trying to find ways to make these small valued policies meaningful to individuals will then open up their economic opportunities and that's desirable for everyone. You've already touched on many interesting trends that are hot right now, microinsurance, cybersecurity, those type of topics. But when I started my venture capital firm, I thought about risk as the foundation for the firm, and I made it the front and center focus for my investments. One of the reasons why I did that was I felt that the existing industry, the insurance industry, is comprised of large organizations that move very slowly. What is the role of startups and founders? in shaping the future of risk? Oh, I think that you're absolutely correct. 
Gopi, that altering the large insurers is such a challenge. To have people think differently and to be able to move quickly is a challenge. The startup community forces that movement. And we see that some of the large insurers have created their own venture arms. And often those venture arms are located away from the headquarters, have separate boards, operate relatively independently so that they're not too stuck in the large organization and unable to move. I'm so excited about the innovations that are coming forward. I have always known that insurance can support society and to be an avenue of good. Today, I also feel that insurance is one of the more exciting areas because of these innovations that are coming forward. So the startups are a part of that, whether they are independent or they are part of the larger organizations. I think it's critical to the success of the risk management community. This perfectly leads into our conversation about Creative Destruction Lab. Your engagement with CDL started around the summer of 2020, and we are now going through the second cohort of startups at CDL Risk. What is the objective of this program? And as a program lead who runs this initiative, what is the goal that you set for the program? The risk stream has a tagline of helping society manage risk. Society is a key component because it's not about making profit or supporting existing organizations. It's about supporting society's ability to manage risk. This is our second year. We're about to have our fourth session for the second stream My goals are to expand the opportunities to participate in CDL risk, especially, and to connect with other CDL sites to enhance the entire program. From that, I'm hoping that we will identify areas of potential support where we can make a difference in society. So we've had two organizations that are focused on parametric insurance and That's what many microinsurance initiatives are. Parametric insurance is when the trigger to pay doesn't come from an individual's loss, but rather some event that we can identify in society. So with crop insurance, that may be that there's too much rain or too little rain or too much wind or too little wind or other kinds of items that are just identified in an objective way. Therefore, the product is not dependent on the effort to determine whether or not loss has occurred. That has some issues where some people get paid when they haven't had loss and some people have loss and they don't get paid. But the more effort we make to have the parametric insurance function effectively, then we can offer these products more efficiently and extend the availability of insurance more broadly. That's the sort of area that I think can really be beneficial. Anytime we can make a system more efficient and take out the costs of trying to manage the risk, So we're making the situation less risky, less variable, at a lower cost, then we can use our resources more effectively. Again, going back to the definition of risk and why risk is important. If we can 
determine some of those areas where we can make life more efficient, make more people able to manage their risk, then society is benefited. So that's my goal. CDL as a whole has an interest in improving the economy. So they are looking for massively scalable opportunities. They look at EBC as the method of evaluation. And we do as well. I personally also have the desire to do good. And I believe that everyone connected with CDL has that same goal. We had a process for CDL with COVID, for example. There was a rapid testing that the CDL sites as a whole undertook. Now we're talking about a CDL security where we are trying to address security more broadly and we're inviting multiple sites to participate. The risk stream is ideal for that because of the issues of cybersecurity as being a key component to security. So if we can be involved in improving security for society as a whole, that would be ideal. To try to be more precise about what my goals are, My goals are to encourage the startup community to find ways that we can improve people's lives, especially those who are in lower income categories, and to improve society, generally speaking. You talked about innovation from the very beginning and how it was part of your life. Innovation in this industry, in risk, is now very heavily weighted on founders and entrepreneurs who build new businesses. Because many of the large companies don't invest in R&D. We're looking forward to new ideas coming from the startup ecosystem. It's a great initiative to bring founders, mentors, investors, advisors all together in this program. How is the program structured? Who are these mentors? How many startups do you screen and how many of them join a cohort? What happens in the program? Sure. Well, I will say that The risk stream has the very best mentors of all of the streams that exist. There currently are now 11 sites that have Creative Destruction Lab locations. Most of them are in Canada. It was started by Ajay Agarwal, who is a professor at the University of Toronto. And then he expanded from Toronto. This year is the 10-year anniversary of the start of Creative Destruction Lab. He initially began in Canada and then added Oxford and HSC in Paris and then Atlanta, Georgia Tech and Wisconsin. And last year added Seattle. And we've just added Estonia. And with Estonia comes the security that I just mentioned. Everyone says that our mentors at Wisconsin, the risk mentors are by far the best and You know, Gopi, that you were the first individual that I invited to become a mentor here. And then we expanded from there. There are really three kinds of individuals that we ask to be mentors. There are prior founders who have been successful, have had successful exits. Kyle Nagatsutsi, who's clear cover. He's one of our mentors. John Regan, who founded Guidewire, is a mentor. We also need the investors. So that would be you and other people similar to you. And third, we have people we refer to as operators, people in the industry who might have some experience with innovation or at least would be able to offer support. We currently have Terry Vaughn. She was the CEO of the NAIC. 
We have people from American Family, Tom Wiest from Tokyo Marine, other people who are in the industry who can offer that expertise. The mentors are intended to help the founders determine what the most important three objectives they need to complete within the coming eight weeks. The idea is that we were trying to create a market for judgment. So Jay Agrawal was noticing that so much of the activity for innovation happens on the two coasts of the United States, the Bay Area and Boston. He thought that's kind of crazy because ideas come from anywhere. Money generates everywhere as well. There are so many prior founders who have been successful who locate in those areas that they can offer judgment or support to new founders. So the new founders move to those locations and they get the judgment from the existing founders and then they decide to stay. Well, Ajay thought, let's create that judgment, but at different locations. What we do is we invite the mentors so far virtually to participate in our program, and they are offering their judgment to the founders. And the founders come through a number of different avenues. We try to advertise CDL widely. There are currently 16 different streams, and some of them have multiple streams. The healthcare area is the one that has the multiple streams. We try to advertise widely so that founders know of the Creative Destruction Lab and apply. Now, something that's important about CDL is that we are a nonprofit. We do not take any fees. We do not take any equity. And we encourage the founders to participate in accelerators and incubators, even while they're in CDL, so that we're trying to provide the support to the founders through the mentorship that's offered, and we don't put any restrictions on their other activities. We bring together these mentors who are high-quality individuals who have the expertise with the venture founders once every eight weeks for about nine months, and we have one-day sessions where the founders describe their business and their objectives, what's going well, what's not going well to the mentors, and the mentors discuss amongst everyone what they think those objectives should be. What are the issues that they see with the founders' activities? What are the successes that are being observed? At the end of the day, the founders are asked to leave the room, and the mentors are given the opportunity to indicate whether or not they are willing to offer four hours of their time in the coming eight weeks. And that's the way this mentorship becomes real. The mentors will help with the pitch decks, how to talk with the potential investors, or how to, to work on the MVP or other activities that are necessary. Some of the founders have indicated that they have difficulty with sales. So how do they talk to prospective clients about their business and get the sales and how many sales should they have? That all goes on in those eight weeks between sessions. Now, if no one raises a hand to offer the four hours, then the venture is not invited back. So there's great competition to make certain that you come back, and we are always delighted when that occurs. 
Sometimes the mentors feel that the founders are too early in their activities and therefore it doesn't make sense for them to continue and they can try again the next year. Sometimes the mentors feel that the founders are too far along, that they don't really need the mentorship. Just go and do your work. You don't need us anymore. Sometimes the founders are not particularly coachable, and that is a problem that will probably mean that they don't return. But the vast majority of the founders are coachable. They are listening. They have great ideas, and they will continue with the program. I said a lot. What questions do you have, Gopi, that I can try to answer about the process? Under your leadership, CDL's Accelerator Program is one of the most well-organized, most effective mentor sessions that I've experienced. I've been a mentor at many accelerators, like 10 plus accelerators over the years. I see the value for founders and I see the good use of the time for mentors as well. It's all coming together really well. I'm curious to understand what you have seen that's most valuable for founders who go through the program. What do they get out of this program? It's already a big plus when an accelerator doesn't take equity. That's a strong positive. But are there specific things that you could highlight, maybe give examples of conversations that you have witnessed and founders who have shared with you on what they got out of the program? One item that comes to mind was a session before last. Kyle Nakatsuchi was asked to comment on the activities of one of the ventures And he talked about the importance of not using and, but thinking about then. I thought that was an incredibly powerful moment that everyone stopped and thought, wow, that is a great comment. Instead of saying we need to do this and that. And the third thing, it's about the timing. First, I do this. Then I do the second. And lastly, will come the third. That's the sort of activity that our mentors offer. Now, it depends on the organization, what's going to be most powerful. Many of them do want to undertake fundraising. We try to get them pre-seed. I just noticed one of the current companies had a $2.8 million fundraise. That's terrific. They just concluded that. Many times the founders are scientists. They know the science, but they don't understand how to talk to the venture capitalists or the angels. And yeah, right. So you have mentored these companies. What do you think they get most out of it? Kyle is a brilliant entrepreneur. Those kind of messages, when shared in the moment, based on experience that Kyle has been through, it has a very high probability of resonating with the founder and they can do something with it. What he said were simple words, but the power of those words and the timing of it creates that impact. That's what I have seen the program do really well. As a mentor, it's an honor to have the opportunity to be a mentor and especially one of the first mentors to sign up. I've also invested in a couple of startups that have gone through the program with PackSafe and TrustLayer. So I'm becoming a bigger and bigger fan of CDL Risk Stream. I'm curious to see what is your vision for the future for CDL Risk? Well, I've talked about having two streams. (laughs) I think that we have enough excellent ventures that we could do that. We could have one that's focused on insurance and one that's more focused on risk, for example. 
I don't know that we will do that, but that's something that I've thought about. And I'm hoping that more founders are aware of CDL risk and that they always come to CDL risk before they are concluded, whether they are successful or not, that they go through CDL risk. As you said, Gopi, you want it to be the place that every new venture in the risk area, they must go through CDL. Currently, we've been inviting 20 ventures to join us. I think we could raise that to 25 and still be of the same quality. As I indicated, we uh, try to advertise. We go to all of the tech organizations and let people know about us. We try to reach out to ventures when we know of them and we encourage them to apply. From that, we got about 150 applications last year. We interviewed about 70 to 75 of them and then whittled it down to 20. If we get more high-quality ventures, I could see it growing. I definitely think we could go to 25. One of the issues, though, is we're trying to get it all done in one day, and the amount that we're asking of all of you mentors is enormous. So if we add ventures, it makes it a little bit more difficult for you to get to know the companies in the first place. That is true. It's a long time commitment on the part of mentors, but that also filters mentors who really care and they want to be there. Only those mentors stay with the program. I'm really excited to see how this program has evolved. It's great to see that the quality is consistently improving. Like I said, I would like to make this program the first program that any founder thinks about when they're building a business that measures, manages, distributes, transfers risk. This could be one of the foundational topics that will really shape the society. And that's the mission that you have outlined for the program. I'm excited to see how this program evolves in the future. I want to switch to the last segment of our conversation and ask you about your community involvement. As a university professor, you're already going way beyond your scope within the academic world into the practical world working with founders. But is there any specific community activity or a nonprofit organization you are particularly passionate about? Which one? I know that you always ask this wonderful question. Of course, right now we are all focused on what's happening in Ukraine. I have given to and have been following World Central Kitchen, who does such amazing work to bring hot food to people when they need it so desperately. Jose Andres' comments of having a longer table to bring everyone together is powerful and inspiring. There are some organizations here that I'm involved in. One is the East Madison Community Center. It's a neighborhood center for low-income individuals. I am so incredibly inspired by the people there. They provide after-school activities to keep the kids out of trouble. They also provide activities for elderly people during the day so that they are not just sitting in their apartments. They offer places for people to have little gardens so that they can grow fresh vegetables and eat effectively, and on and on. I've been a board member of the East Madison Community Center, and it's, again, an opportunity to offer people a way to get out of the low-income status, to build a true community, and to support one another. So that's an organization that I feel pretty strongly about. 
Joan, thank you so much for sharing your candid views, starting from your childhood days and how that shaped your outlook, your definition for risk and why that's important. And as a professor, how you emphasize on research and innovation in this topic. And lastly, the power of entrepreneurship and how that brings innovation to this sector that is large, important, and is the backbone of our society. Thank you so much for sharing specific examples based on your experience. I'm very, very inspired. Thank you, Gopi. And you are a key component to it. Thank you for listening to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur. I hope you enjoyed listening to real-life stories about early believers supporting ambitious entrepreneurs. Please subscribe to the podcast and post a review. Your comments will help other entrepreneurs find this podcast. I look forward to catching you at the next episode.